This morning, we're looking at a, a passage in 1 Timothy. It's printed there in your worship folder, or if you're, you're looking at it online. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you, if you go in almost any bookstore, you will see a series of books that came out a number of years ago, a series called For Dummies. Uh, auto repair for dummies, cooking for dummies, learning French for dummies. I mean, it's an extensive series of instruction and reference books which were intended to be written as non-intimidating guides uh, for readers new to the various topics. And the series has had worldwide success in numerous languages. This letter of First Timothy, in a sense, could be part of that series. Um, Paul is, the Apostle Paul is writing to his the man he has mentored named Timothy, who is a pastor in the great city of Ephesus. And Paul is writing to him, this is called a pastoral epistle, to give him pastoral advice, how to lead, basically how to do church. Not to sound trite, but it's an instructional manual like Church for Dummies. And he's, he's going to tell about what are you supposed to do as a as a church, what's supposed to happen. And he's going to begin in an area that probably um, is an indictment against us all. But let's look at these verses together and you'll see what I mean. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. The church should make prayer a priority. Paul begins at the beginning. He begins with the fundamentals, and he says, first of all. And he's not only saying first of all as though that's first in a sequence. That's first in priority. First of all. Begin with prayer. And it's an exhortation. He's saying, this is what you're to do. I urge then, first of all, when it comes to being a church, doing church, what should go on in a congregation of gathered believers, it begins with prayer. We see this also by example in the book of Acts chapter 6. The apostles, those, those early disciples of Jesus who now were the uh, held the office of apostle, they gave themselves to prayer. There was a problem within the congregation there in Jerusalem with the feeding, the dis distribution of food to the widows. And it was a structural program, it, uh, problem. It was an administrative problem. And they exhorted them, and I read from Acts chapter 6, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, we, speaking of the apostles, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So there was an administrative issue 
the distribution of food. They said that's important. It's important enough that it needs attention. But if we do it, it's going to pull us away from what our priorities should be. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. So first of all, Paul says, the church begins with prayer. Now, one of my heroes in the faith that I began reading about in high school was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher in London back in the latter 1800s. Spurgeon was known as a great preacher and evangelist, and you might say he was the first pastor of the first megachurch there. There would be 6,000 people every week that would fill that building, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, to hear him preach. And then he preached an average of 10 times a week, so he's known as a preacher. Well, I've got a book of his that's a collection of the prayers he would pray, like John Kinzer did a few moments ago in the worship services. And he would be so caught up in those prayers with thousands of people in front of him that they said it was often the case that when he finished the prayer and he opened his eyes, he would be startled having forgotten he was in the presence of anyone else other than God. And he said this. Now this from a person who was known as a preacher. He said, We shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. You would think someone like him would say, we will never see churches in better condition until the preaching is more effective. That's not what he says at all. We shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. Well, what kind of prayer? Paul moves on. In verse 1, he, he spells out, he, he mentions requests or petitions. He says prayers. He says intercessions. What are these, these different types that he's referencing? Well, the first words, the request or petitions, just offering a request for a felt need. Um, maybe say, I'm, I'm praying for a job, or I'm praying for to get better I'm from being sick, or, or a, just a simple request. Then he says prayers in general, the need for more wisdom or growth in grace. It's hard to see answers to those prayers, specific answers. But then he uses this word, intercession. Intercessions, what are those? To intercede means to intervene on behalf of another person. That's what it means to, to intercede. It means to intervene on behalf of another person, to mediate between two parties. When I was in college, I uh, was home summer working, and I bought a stereo to go in my car. And I, this was before the big box stores were so well-known. So it was a local ownership there in my hometown and in Alabama. And I bought it, and I had heard it in the store. It sounded good. I installed it in my car. And it didn't sound right. Something was wrong. Something was terribly wrong. There was, a, there was a buzz and a hum. And I did everything I could do, and I went back, and I said, I think something's defective here. And they said, well, and this has only been a couple of days, they said, we'll have to send it off and, and have it repaired. And I thought, can't you just give me another one? You've got others. And, and the person just held their ground. No, we'll have to send it off. I thought, oh, great. Now I'm going to be back at college by the time this thing comes back. So I went back and forth, and my father was watching me try to deal with this and getting nowhere. And after several days, I saw him one night. He went to the phone. He picked up the phone, and he, he called the owner of the store that was a friend of his. I didn't know who the man was. And all I know is my dad hung up the phone. He said, drive down there tomorrow. And I drove down, and they gave me another one. Well, what had my dad done? He had, he had interceded for me. 
it was not me that my request was turned down. So, so what does Paul mean when we, uh, we are to pray and intercede on behalf of others? Well, we take, I go on behalf of my friend here. I go on behalf of this other person, and I go before the Lord, and I say, Lord, help, help Joe over here. Uh, he needs this. I'm pleading his case. Why does God work this way? We're not told. We're not told, but it, it's part of... Y'all see that hummingbird? Now, that is a first. <laughs> I compliment Becky Meyer, whoever did uh, Ellen Danner, whoever did the flowers. That's a nice touch in a sermon to have a hummingbird come up right. But to intercede on behalf of others. And we know in Scripture, Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. He is pleading our case to the Father. And then what does it say in Hebrews about Christ? He always lives to make intercession for them. He intercedes for us. He's praying for us right now. He's taking, like my dad on the phone saying, I want you to deal with this on behalf of my son. The, the son, Jesus, is interceding for us. That's to be part of our prayers. Not just our own needs, not just not things we desire, but praying on behalf of others. And then he mentions thanksgiving. Do you realize in heaven there'll be certain types of prayer that won't cease? There will be no prayers of confession of sin. Won't that be wonderful? There'll be no prayers for healing for the sick. There'll be no prayers for needs to be met of certain types. But one type of prayer among others that will continue is thanksgiving. How do I know? Well, in Revelation 7, it gives us a picture of what's happening around God's throne. And it says in verses 11 and 12, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Why will there continue to be thanksgiving in heaven? Because only there will we really know and truly see how much we owe God. And then we will see clearly, oh, you did that and that and that and that and that and that and that. That was your mercy, God. We thank you. So thanksgiving is a, we begin it here, but it's going to continue forever. The church also is to have a wide scope in prayer, Paul says. Verse 1 says we're to pray for all people. All people, worldwide. Not just our immediate needs and those we know. There are many excellent resources today. If you have the book, I have a copyright in there, Operation World. It's, uh, it's revised about every five to ten years. I think the late, latest revision was uh, 2016. It's got all the countries, every country in the world, and it gives all the population demographics and prayer needs and uh, religious professions and government in that particular country. And what if your children, parents or parents-to-be, what if your children were to hear you on a regular basis pray for other countries of the world? What if they were to hear you pray by name for the 480-plus cities in the world that have a population of more than a million people. What, if, what kind of impression would that make to see that you and I literally can influence world affairs in other places on the planet with our prayers? So we're to pray for all people. And then he includes, as, as we used in a responsive reading earlier, 
kings and all those in authority. Why would he mention this? Why would he go from all people to, to then in the Roman Empire and kings and all those in authority? I think it's because our tendency is to leave them out. We need to be reminded about that, especially if they're hostile to our faith. Now, we don't have kings today in America, but we have the state, so we apply that over to that, our government. What, do, what is the basic role of government? If you ask an elementary student, say, uh, if they were to say, well, what's the government supposed to do? Let, let me give you the basic, the most basic definition or description of what government's to do. And it's found there in, in several places in the New Testament, but one is in 1 Peter. They are sent by God to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. That's the foundational role of government, to punish wrongdoers and to commend those who do right. And Peter, before that, says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Now, before you write this off and say, Well, Paul and Peter, they could say that because they, were, they always had good rulers. <laughs> if you know a little bit about history, you know otherwise. When Paul wrote this, Nero was the emperor. And it doesn't take reading far. And I, Well, here's, here I read this just from a, a Christian history encyclopedia. Here's the description of Nero. This is what it lists for him. He was just three years old when his father died. It was little loss to the boy since his father had been a murderer, a bully, and a cheat. His mother took over the family's trade and continued the boy's education. She murdered his stepfather with poison mushrooms. While still young, he committed his first murder, killing a teenage boy who stood in his way, and he watched him die with calloused indifference. He married at age 15, but soon he had that wife killed. He married again, and he killed his second wife, too. In order to marry the third time, he murdered the husband of the woman he wanted. His mother annoyed him, so he arranged her murder. At age 31, he was sentenced to death by flogging, but he escaped to the house of a slave, and he gave the infant church its first taste of things to come because he was the first of the persecuting Caesars. So it was while this man was emperor that Paul writes, pray for those in authority. And the purpose of our prayers, it says in the latter part of verse 2 is that we may lead quiet, peaceful, and quiet lives. I struggled for a long time with what that meant. Does that just mean that, that we just kind of fade into the woodwork? No, it means that the government being able to achieve conditions of peace and security that would enable us and all people to pursue our own lives. It's not just for the benefit of Christians, but for all people to live in peace and free from calamity. And we got a taste of calamity over the past year. But imagine, imagine living in a country where war has been all you've known. Like, like so many have in the, in the Middle East and in, in parts of, of Africa and, and other countries today. Imagine that. Imagine how life would have no foundation. And every day may be your last. Every hour may be your last. And this is a direct prayer to say that we not, that God would bless the civil authorities to keep us from such things as that. 
and that we might live in all godliness and holiness. Let me keep moving. We've got just a few more minutes. I'm in the sun. What am I, what am I empathizing with you all about? I don't know. He says this pleases God in verses 3 and 4. Genuine prayer pleases God. This should be our ultimate motive. Verse 4. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What does this mean? Does it mean everyone is going to go to heaven? Does it mean everyone will be saved? Well, it, the issue focuses around the word all. God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible teaches the doctrine we might call of divine election, of God choosing some to eternal life. We see that. We're studying 1 Thessalonians normally. In 2 Thessalonians, one of the verses is, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. But there's always the complementary truth in the Bible that God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so our tendency is to say, well, one or the other has to be the absolute truth and it negates the other, but it doesn't. We just, as John Piper says, we live with the tension that God chooses and yet He desires all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we, the point for us is, since we don't know who God is going to save, for sure, we assume everyone. And our prayers should cover everyone. The preaching should invite everyone to believe in Christ. We're never to limit that. We're never to limit the free offer of the gospel. Now think about this, how prayer plays a part in that work of people coming to Christ. And it doesn't require any special talents. Everyone sitting here today, within the range of my voice, you are qualified for this ministry. It doesn't require special gifts. It doesn't require special experience. You can be of any age. You may not be able to see or hear or maybe walk. You may not speak English, but speak another language. But prayer is God's will for you as a Christian. And you can do it. And you should do it. And as a church, we should do it. So we should pray. And we should, as we do so, and, and finally, we remember that Christ is our mediator. In verses 5 and 6. A mediator is the person in the middle. He brings reconciliation between two rival parties. And Christ is unique. He's unique in that who He was is unique. He's the man Christ. He became a human being. So He's an intermediary who's able to represent both sides equally between God and between us as humans. So he's able to mediate between the two. He was God from the beginning. Therefore, he derived his divine being from his father eternally, and he became a human in the womb of his mother Mary. Second, he's unique in that what he did was unique. He came and he lived a perfect life, and then he died as a substitute for others. And so God desires all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we're never to limit the scope of world missions. Never. The gospel must be preached to all and salvation offered to all. Now, the title of the sermon is How to Pray for Your Nation, and you're still waiting for me to get there, right? Well, now I'm going to. Long ago, Matthew Henry, who was the Bible commentary, probably the best-known Bible commentary, at least in the English language today, he lived in the 1600s and early 1700s in England. And he compiled a list 
of important concerns for believers to pray for their nation. Now, he was British, um, but I want to share some of those. There's a long list, and I've I've got about uh, 14 of them here that I'm going to read quickly, and with slight modifications to change the language and to make them fit more our situation. Here are some of the things he thinks we should pray for. We must be thankful to God for his mercies to our land. We must be humble before God for our national sins and provocations. We must pray earnestly for the favor of God to us and the tokens of his presence among us as that in which the happiness of our nation is bound up. Fourth, we should pray for the continuance of the gospel among us and the means of grace and a national profession of Christ's holy religion. Fifth, we should pray for the continuance of our outward peace and tranquility, our liberty and plenty, for the prosperity of our trades and blessings upon the fruits of the earth. Six, we should pray for the success of our endeavors, for the reformation of our manners, for the suppression of vice and profaneness, and the support of religion and virtue and the bringing of them into reputation. Seven, we should pray for the healing of our divisions, and the making up of our breaches. Eighth, we should pray for victory and success against our enemies abroad that seek our ruin. Nine, we should pray for our president that God will protect his person, preserve his health, and continue his life and government as a public blessing. Ten, we should pray for the president's cabinet, the senators and congressmen, the ambassadors and envoys abroad and for all that are employed in the conduct of public affairs. Eleven, we should pray for the judicial system, especially the judges, the public prosecution and defenders, and all those in the profession of the law. Twelve, we should pray for all ministers of God's holy word and sacraments. Thirteen, we should pray for universities and colleges and schools of learning. Fourteen, we should pray for all the people of the land and especially the downcast. I'll stop there. But clearly, there is much to pray for our nation in obedience individually and corporately as a church to what Paul is telling Timothy to do with the Christians there in Ephesus. It should go much further than Lord bless our land. With those thoughts in mind, I'd like to have a a closing prayer before we sing our final hymn. And I want to try and incorporate in this prayer several of the things that are addressed in this passage. Okay? So let's pray together. Oh God, you have invited us to enter your presence through our mediator, the Lord Jesus. And we praise you for the wonderful revelation of your love for us in him. And our eternal hope rests in this life upon his life and death and resurrection. And you are worthy of our petitions and our prayers and our thanksgivings and our intercession. And you are worthy of all praise for you from whom flow all the blessings and comfort in this life and in the life to come. Forgive us for our lack of prayer. Probably none of us here don't sense some level of conviction when we see the priority that we as pastors should be leading your church in as officers that this should mark our lives here among this local church. Forgive us for our self-sufficiency. Forgive us for our lack of faith and doubting 
of Your power and Your goodness and Your desire to answer. We ask that You would make us a praying people, that we would pray without ceasing, and that we would actually find joy in Your presence through prayer. Remove from us, we ask, the fleeting pleasure of this world and set our hearts on the world to come. As you have commanded and as we've done earlier, we pray today for our president and those in authority. <clears throat> for those who, who humanly rule our land, we ask that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives free from calamity, that we might pursue godliness and holiness. We intercede especially for our Christian brothers and sisters in parts of the world where they are persecuted for their faith, that you would bring swift deliverance, that you would bring comfort and protection to their families. We ask that the gospel would go forth to the unreached people on the earth, that people be, people be brought to faith in Christ, indeed from every tribe and nation, kindred and tongue. Please raise up laborers for the harvest, for the fields are ripe and ready. Thank you for the ransom that Jesus has paid not just for an exclusive small group, but for all. May your love for all and ransom for all motivate us to bear witness to all, including our families and friends. Please change the hearts of those we know and love who do not yet know you. Give them the gift of faith to believe in you, the one God, and Jesus, the one mediator. <clears throat> and in his name we pray. Amen.